This is the podcast Surgery I See Rounds. My name's Jeff Guy. Hello, this is July 4th, Independence Day here in the United States. And the first week of July typically is the week in which we introduce new residents or interns into clinical care. And it was really my hope to spend this first week of July talking about things that are really elementary to intensive care medicine, things such as IV fluids or uh, management, early uh, management strategies of sepsis, things that are really considered bread and butter ICU. However, given the events that have transpired in the news, typically in in both Scotland and the United Kingdom, uh, I feel compelled to talk about a topic of bomb and blast injuries. This is a topic that many people in public health are, are quite frankly concerned that the average clinician has little to no understanding and certainly very rare exposure uh, to. Uh, typically often confined to areas such as the battlefield or a rare industrial explosion. The idea of treating bomb and blast uh, explosions are are becoming more commonplace, uh, particularly with uh, uh, the um, uh, advent of uh, terrorist attacks on civilian centers of population. The Center for Disease Control here in the United States is actually concerned that uh, an average provider uh, does not have the fundamental understanding of this process and has developed quick sheets which can be faxed to uh, emergency departments at a time of crisis to provide a basic understanding of some of the basic concepts of the uh, pathology involved with bomb and blast injuries as well as some of the basic tenements in in providing the care. It is the objective of this podcast to provide some of that information uh, to the provider. Keep in mind, in the event of a mass casualty, uh, many of us uh, will have to practice outside of our scope of practice. If you are a paramedic, a nurse, or a junior resident, you might very likely be field promoted to take care of patients who are typically outside of your scope due to the, the uh, uh, just massive numbers of, of patients uh, that are injured and the few numbers of providers. Bombing injuries are not as rare as we'd like to think. If we look historically back to uh, July 7th of 2005, the London Transit bombing, 56 people were killed and 700 people were injured. Uh, the bombings of Madrid, Spain back in March 11th of 2004, 191 people were killed, 1,900 people injured. Now clearly a lot of the injured patients weren't uh, patients with Apache scores of of 45, but they were certainly patients who required care and attention. The Bali bombings back in 2002, October of 2002, 202 people were killed, 209 people were injured. The U.S. Embassy car bombings in 1998 in various areas um, uh, around the world, in Tanzania, Nairobi, Kenya, hundreds of deaths, thousands of injuries. If you look in a, just a small period of time in Israel, from basically September of 2002 to December of 2003, there were roughly some 19,900 terrorist-related incidents. Certainly we know that bombing of types of events and blast injuries are not uh, unique uh, to areas outside of the United States. World Trade Center bombing in 1993, the first attack on the World Trade Center, killed six and injured a thousand. Uh, that uh, 
uh, terrorist attack was actually designed to be something much more hideous. Um, and it is my understanding that there was actually a chemical element of this as well, and when the uh, bomb actually went off, it actually destroyed um, uh, the uh, the chemical agent uh, for basically to create a cyanide bombing. Oklahoma City, the bombing of the uh, Murray Federal Building, there were 168 people that died. About 8,000 people were injured. And then, of course, there's the Atlantic Olympic Park bombing in July of 1996. One woman died, and more than 100 patients were injured. Keep in mind that we're looking at the numbers of injuries. We're really talking, in some cases, between hundreds to thousands of um, uh, injuries. And, and as uh, terrorists become uh, more sophisticated and, and perhaps even more evil, their, their plots become more sinister and more lethal. Bombings are the most common cause of casualties in terrorist incidents. In 93 terrorist attacks reported between 1991 and the year 2000, this is uh, really prior to a World Trade Center attack in 2001, um, in that period of time, um, those types of incidents involved more than 30 casualties, 88% of the events involved bombings. Sudden mass casualty situations such as these impose massive burdens on emergency systems as well as trauma systems. We've seen that in the Murray Federal Building in Oklahoma City, the bombing there using a panel truck, as well as what happened uh, um, recently in uh, the United Kingdom and Scotland using the sedans, that a uh, automobile is, is an attractive way to conceal and mobilize large amounts of munitions. Suicide bombers also may wear a belt or a vest that they may trigger themselves. We've recently seen in the news, uh, as of just two weeks ago, a uh, a journalist uh, from the United States was uh, put on uh, television, and he was wearing a, uh, a vest which was uh, laden with explosives. As I've said, trucks and car bombs carry large amounts, which out attracted much in the way of suspicion. The uh, uh, United States Alcohol, Tobacco, and uh, Firearms Bureau uh, has a... Um, uh, graph that is uh, reproduced uh, in many places, is certainly available on the internet, but what it does is it gives in one column uh, various configurations of automobiles, a compact sedan, a full-size sedan, um, a passenger van, a small panel van, and, and all the way up to something like a large uh, semi-truck trailer. And a compact sedan, now this is what's smaller than what was used um, in uh, London this past week, can carry roughly 500 pounds of uh, explosives. The lethal blast range. The lethal blast range is roughly 100 feet. The minimum evacuation uh, distance is 1,500 feet, about two tenths of a mile. Falling glass hazard from the debris about 1,250 feet. Now, if we remember what was used um, uh, in um, uh, that was a bomb, the two car bombs that were set to go off uh, in downtown London. Those were full size sedans. Those were actually Mercedes. They're actually pretty nice automobiles. Um, and if you remember, the, 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 scriptures, the scriptures that we're getting on the news was that they were carried uh, fuel, propane, as well as um, nails, and the nails act as a projectile. They can carry roughly 1,000 pounds of explos explosives in the trunk. Now, the lethal blast range is roughly 125 feet. So if you're within 125 feet uh, of that automobile when it goes off, uh, and it was in a very crowded area, much much like uh, uh, Times Square is in the United States, 125 feet can can certainly have several hundred, if not a thousand, uh, um, uh, people there, and those people are destined to die. They're they're not going to be able to survive that initial blast. The minimum safe evacuation distance, the distance that you need to be in order not to sustain injuries, is roughly 1,750 feet. 
Now keep in mind that there are roughly 5,280 some odd feet in a mile. It's 1,700 feet you have to be in and avoid to avoid any falling debris. Passenger vans, uh, cargo vans can hold 4,000 pounds. Um, uh, lethal blast range 200 feet. Minimum evacuation is uh, 2,700 feet. A small box van can hold up to 10,000 pounds of explosives and um, um, the uh, lethal blast range there is 300 feet uh, with a minimum evacuation and, and uh, falling hazard debris for 3,700 feet. And this is why you see all the changes to uh, things such as parking uh, around uh, major airports. We need to provide some definitions. Typically here, what are explosives? And an explosive is a chemical or compound or mixture that when subjected to heat, shock, friction, or another impulse leads to a rapid chemical reaction or combustion and an equally rapid generation of heat and gases. That's the, and what that results in a consequent combined volume is much larger than the original substance. So what is that kind of geek explanation? Well, you basically have a trigger. The explosive changes its form, uh, liberating uh, heat, uh, rapidly uh, increasing its volume, and uh, that results in basically rupturing its container. Uh, often uh, accompanied by high temperatures, extreme shock, and a loud noise. Um, really, an explosion is the process of a substance transforming into a gaseous state. And when it does that, it does it quickly, and it takes up more volume. Now, there are really three... Now, uh, we think of rupturing its container. The most common type of uh, explosion is really uh, when you blow up a balloon and it ruptures. So let's talk about three different types of explosions. There's an atomic explosion, which I think most people are are pretty um, have a mental image of what an atomic explosion actually is. We're not going to go much into radiation exposure. Perhaps we should. Perhaps we should just dedicate an entire podcast to that. There's a, the mechanical explosion, and that's characterized by a gradual buildup of pressure in a container until it overcomes the structural resistance of the container, and an explosion occurs. Now, the example that's most commonly given is a pipe bomb. But let's imagine, again, you're blowing up a kid's balloon, and you keep blowing it up and blowing it up, and eventually the balloon pops. Okay, if you have that image, now let's read this, this uh, definition again of what a mechanical explosion is. Gradual buildup of pressure in a container, i.e. a balloon, until it overcomes the structural resistance of the container, the balloon pops. And an explosion occurs, uh, liberating typically a loud noise. That's your balloon popping. Now, a chemical uh, explosion is a similar type of thing. You have a conversion of a solid or a liquid, and that explosive compound turns into a gas, and that gas generates a greater volume than the substance which initially generated it. So it rapidly fills up the balloon and it ruptures the container and frequently associated with heat and that's what you see typically with a lot of these chemical explosives simplified but i hope makes the point now we know when we're talking about gunshot wounds we have high velocity and low velocity weapons we also have what's called uh, high order and low order explosives this is really depending on the rate at which this chemical reaction takes place so the rate which the chemical substance changes its form and rapidly um, fills a space. Gunpowder is the first explosive used really uh, as a military ordinance. This is a low order explosive. Low order explosives change relatively slow from a solid to a gas state and generally less than 2,000 meters per second. Now let's talk about high um, high explosives. And they react almost instantaneously. And they cause a sudden increase in pressure and a detonation wave that moves at supersonic speeds. We're talking here about speeds in excess of 1,400 to 9,000 meters per second. 
Common examples of this are TNT, which is, uh, and uh, some of the more recent polymer-bound explosives, such as uh, Semtex, uh, which are about 1.5 times the power of TNT. High explosives are commonly used in military ordnance, uh, as well as uh, some of these perhaps terrorist attacks. Now, a detonator, you may hear what that is, is a type of explosive that reacts rapidly and is used to set off the more inert explosives. Fulminate of mercury mixed with potassium chloride is the most commonly used detonator. Detonators can also be equipped, uh, which by flame, spark, percussion, friction, or pressure are used to set off a chemical detonator. So if you imagine uh, um, a, a domino falling, and as it falls, it falls into 15 other dominoes and creates this series of reactions. That first fall of the domino could potentially be used to describe what a detonator is. It's the first small explosive that sets off a much more... Um, um, a larger explosive of a substance that's typically more inert, and that's your high, uh, high explosives. The rapid release of enormous amounts of energy in high explosives results in that primary blast wave. Okay, now this primary blast wave we're going to talk a lot because it really results in a significant amount of injury. Um, and this primary blast wave uh, basically will take fragments and environmental material and debris and generates intense thermal radiation. Now you heat and this creates the instantaneous rise in pressure, resulting in a shock wave that travels outward at supersonic speed. It's that wave or leading front, which is in really a significant part of that blast wave. Now, we have to spend some time talking about what, what a blast wave is. Um, now, uh, if you were to take a rock and throw it into a puddle, you will get an initial wave that spreads out. Uh, if you set off an explosion, you're going to get an invisible but the same type of pressure wave that's going to move outward in all directions. Um, and that's going to create a pressure wave. It's going to uh, rupture the container that w- which it's in, and that's going to result in fragmentation, which is going to throw metal, debris, and glass, uh, which will penetrate anybody that's uh, in the vicinity. It'll create a significant blast wind. Uh, you will get an incendiary thermal effect or fire, and you could get secondary blast effects as well. Uh, we talked a little bit about detonation velocities, we, and this uh, blast pressure wave is supersonic, and it moves out in all directions, and it uses pressures that really exceed up to 700 tons. Keep in mind, a ton is 2,000 pounds. 700 tons. Imagine being hit in the chest by that. And it's depl- uh, this displaced air compresses, forming a vacuum, returning to the point of detonation. So what happens is you get this massive pressure wave that moves outward. And as it moves out, it creates a vacuum at ground zero. And then you get a pressure wave that comes back. This is typically known as a Friedlander relationship. Uh, and if you can find a, a, a book or table on ballistics uh, that describes this, it, uh, it, w- it would certainly help make a metal image. Um, uh, this variation in air pressure creates a mass movement of air uh, known as dynamic overpressurization of this, black, this blast wave. Um, and um, uh, this creates havoc both on physical structures as well as uh, the environmental structures such as buildings and glass and so forth. Now I want to talk about this primary blast injury. This is the result of the overpressurization of this pressure wave sweeping down and hitting uh, the body. Imagine a blunt trauma of a whole different magnitude. If somebody were in an automobile and they were hit a brick wall at 50, 60, 70 miles an hour, you have mental images in your mind as to what patterns of injuries that will cause, fractured ribs perhaps, pulmonary contusions, long bone fractures, what have you. Well, imagine getting hit with an invisible bat at a pressure of 700 tons. 
The biological effects of the blast wave depend on the peak pressure and the duration uh, of the overpressurization. The effects of secondary tertiary will also cause quaternary mechanisms of injury with these blast waves. Primary blast injury results in the interaction of the blast wave with the body or tissue, producing two types of energy, stress waves and shear waves. Stress waves produced by the interaction of the blast wave and the body surfaces are supersonic longitudinal pressure waves. Now, uh, injuries typically occur mainly to gas-filled organs, the, the auditory, the ears, the pulmonary system, the GI system. Uh, blast lung injury uh, is something we're going to spend uh, some time on. Tympanic membrane rupture, you have middle ear injury, abdominal hemorrhage, perforation, and, and certainly traumatic brain injuries. I'm taking uh, a large number of this material uh, from a talk I've given previously, and I've just recently came across a, a book last week uh, by Mahoney and colleagues called Ballistic Trauma. It's published by Springer Press, and they have a nice chapter, chapter three, on thermobaric mechanisms of injury. And that's where a lot of this, some of the stuff I'm coming from now is from. If you look at thoracic injuries, now blasts blast producing overpressurizations of less than 40 pounds per square inch generally will not cause pulmonary injury, with 40 PSI being roughly 20 kilograms of TNT exploding 6 meters away. Approximately 50% of casualties will sustain pulmonary damage when pressure waves exceed 80 pounds per square inch or more. With uh, pressure waves uh, over 200 pounds per square inch, these are considered uniformly fatal. Blast injury to the lung is the cause of the greatest morbidity and mortality from the blast effect alone. Now the now, the fragmentation effect occurs when the projectiles included in the container. So when the car was uh, designed to explode in London last week and they packed it with nails, the idea was then when the car exploded, the metal and glass that made up the automobile would fragment and be thrown at the air uh, at velocities of 2,700 feet per second, which, keep in mind, is faster than a high-velocity weapon. Something like an AK-47 or M-16 have muzzle velocities of roughly 1,500 meters per uh, uh, meters per second, so this is feet per second, so it's a, perhaps a little bit less or similar, but still very high velocities. So you're getting torn apart by these pieces of metal and glass, much like you're getting shot by a machine gun. Uh, and that was the idea behind the nails. The nails create this fragmentation effect, and you get these penetrating ballistic injuries. You can also get ocular penetration in addition to the blunt injuries from the pressure uh, overpressurization waves. Now, focusing on this primary blast lung injury that we see from the thoracic injury, it is the highest morbidity and mortality of primary blast injuries. If you look, uh, let's quote some of the literature here, but from uh, 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 Pizoff, uh, uh, journalist Chess, 1999, 828 victims of explosions, 17% of the fatalities had blast lung injury as the sole finding. Uh, looking at uh, Pelig, American Journal of Emergency Medicine 2003, hospitalized terror victims in Israel from September 2000 to December 2001, chest trauma accounted for 31% of the injuries and 9.4% of the deaths. Um, uh, Arnold and colleagues, uh, Annals of Emergency Medicine 2004, blunt lung injury occurred for 42% of the victims in confined space bombings versus 10% of those involving structural collapse and 7% of open-air bombings. Uh, Stein, uh, Surgical Clinics North America, 1999, 50% of victims will suffer some pulmonary damage with overpressurization waves between 50 and 100 PSIs. Overpressurization waves greater than 200 pounds per square inch are fatal. What can happen is, is the alveolar septi are disrupted and hemorrhage occurs in three distinct patterns. 
plural and subplurals one, multifocal and diffuse parenchymal with alveolar hemorrhage, kind of like a really severe pulmonary contusion, and peribronchial and perivascular hemorrhage. These patterns of injury may range from isolated scattered petechiae to confluent consolidated areas of hemorrhage. Subplural cysts, laceration of the pleura may lead to pneumohemothoraxes, pneumomediastinum, or tension pneumothoraces. Lethal primary blast injury potential could present with no outward signs of trauma. In severe blast injury, immediate death may be attributed to a characteristic triad of physiological responses of primary thoracic blast of bradycardia, apnea, and hypotension that is unrelated to hemorrhage. Immediate death also has been attributed to massive air embolism resulting from the disruption of the alveolar wall and adjacent pulmonary capillaries with air emboli primarily affecting cerebral and coronary vessels. So again, uh, this can lead to, like I said, the perivascular hemorrhages, um, and uh, some of the lung injuries may present it's just a simple pneumothoraces and tension pneumothoraces. Uh, multiple, again, I'm, I'm reading here from uh, Mahoney's textbook on the ballistic trauma. Multiple animal studies have demonstrated large alveolar venous and bronchovenous fistulas following blast trauma. The Trendelenburg position is not advisable in these patients, as now it has been thought to predispose patients to coronary air embolism. The immediate therapy is supplemental oxygen with hyperbaric oxygen being definitive treatment of systemic air embolism, although not usually available or clinically practical. Again, look at the numbers of patients that have been treated in these circumstances, and you're not going to be putting these patients in uh, hyperbaric chambers. Uh, alveolar venous fistulas are thought to resolve in 24 hours, but must be considered a continuing risk in casualties that require positive pressure, ventilation, especially with application of PEEP. Um, in survivors, clinical manifestations of primary blast injuries may present immediately or be delayed for as long as 24 to 48 hours. Chest, chest x-rays reveal diffuse patchy infiltrates that present a butterfly pattern. These become extensive over the first 48 hours but are usually nearly resolved in 7 days. Continued progression of the infiltrates after 48 hours should lead one to consider ARDS. So again, hemoptysis uh, and barotrauma are common signs. Refractors may not be present, have a high index of suspicion for the development of a pulmonary contusion. He goes on, prophylactic tube thoracostomy should be considered if casualties must be evacuated by air or when close observation is impractical. Well, when's close observation impractical? Well, if you've got 300 victims. Um, fluid resuscitation should be managed judiciously. Boy, that's a theme that we see just about everywhere nowadays. Basically, don't flood everybody with fluids. Uh, and early monitoring of hemodynamic parameters should be considered. The ideal fluid resuscitation and blast injury is not known. However, preload should be optimized without overloading using crystalloid with or without colloid. Um... In the absence of uh, hemorrhage, many patients with thoracic blasts manifest prolonged hypertension for several days with mean arterial pressures ranging between 50 to 60 millimeters of mercury, systolic pressures of 80 to 90, and a diastolic between 40 and 50 millimeters of mercury. The mechanism of this hypertension, is, hypotension is not understood. Now I want to talk about injuries to the ear, which may not seem to be a big deal, but I want you to consider some logistics and listen to the uh, types of injuries that you can have. Uh, the auditory is air-filled, as we talked about, and it's the air-filled or, uh, organs that are most susceptible to trauma. It's very susceptible to blast, and the most commonly observed blast injury is to the ear. Um, 
hearing loss may resolve in hours or may become permanent in greater than 50% of the patients or has been reported in some series. Although not a priority for treatment, um, auditory injury should be addressed in 24 hours and auditory now clean of debris. 50 to 80% of ruptured tympanic membranes will heal spontaneously without further treatment. Well, it's obvious if you're near an explosion, there's a loud bang, there's a pressure wave, you rupture your tympanic membranes, you can't hear. Now, imagine you're trying to organize four or five hundred people who are coming to your emergency department or your field hospital where you're providing field care and they can't hear. Well, there was a, a, a great photograph years ago. I'm, I'm not sure which major newspaper in the United States had it, but there was an ambulance uh, was responding to a, uh, an attack in the Middle East. It was uh, uh, an Israeli ambulance, and there was a Palestinian that was being escorted out of the ambulance. The ambulance had pulled up. This injured individual ran up to the ambulance, which any, anybody would do. If you're hurt, you see an ambulance, you go get help. That would seem to make sense. Now, imagine you have an area that has, you know, 200 people that are injured. You would not want to roll up your ambulance right up to the scene of the uh, uh, attack. Why is that? Because everybody who could walk will go to where they need can see help, and that would be the ambulances. The rub in it is, if you can walk to an ambulance and you've got 200 victims that are at ground zero of a bombing, they are probably not the ones who need the ambulances. So what you want to do is they typically stage the uh, ambulances at a remote site and bring the most critical injured to those patients to try to protect that asset. The other thing you don't want to do is have somebody sitting with a bullhorn and saying, if you, could, if you have injuries and can walk, go to your left. Well, if you're trying to get them to your left, that means your ambulances are certainly to the right because the ambulances are for people who cannot walk, cannot comprehend, cannot understand instructions. If you fulfill those criteria looking at various triage schemes, those are the people who need an ambulance and a mass casualty. If you have somebody sitting at the bullhorn and, as we said, 50 to 80% of these people are going to have no hearing, it's not going to do you any good. So you need to have large signage. And they learn this at uh, places where, particularly in the Middle East, where they have a lot of terrorist attacks, they've learned to develop signs and say, if you need help, go to the left and hold up a large sign. And same thing with your wherever you're doing your triage plan for your disaster planning. Now, keep in mind, if people are walking, they're going to go to where it says emergency or help. You don't want those areas being bottlenecks uh, if those are your highest resources, resource areas where you have your trauma teams deployed. Uh, intestinal injuries may be overshadowed by the more immediate life-threatening pulmonary and cardiovascular injuries. Lower GI tract is more often um, uh, often tends to be filled with air. Ileocecal valve area, or the, the cecum, is the mo- area most susceptible to primary blast injury, um, uh, and the small intestine is generally in, uh, spared. The mechanism of injury, uh, as discussed earlier, varying degrees of rapid compression decompression, resulting in wall damage, immediate rupture, leading to peritonitis and hemorrhage. Uh, multifocal intramural hematomas begin in submucosa and extending increasing severity to large transmural confluent hematoma and may involve the mesentery and vascular supply. Cirrhosal injury should be considered indicative of a transmural injury. Uh, delayed perforation may be seen in some patients up to 14 days after the injury and can occur and most likely is related to progressive ischemia and necrosis with transmural injury or adjacent mesenteric injury. I've seen this um, not with a blast injury, but we've seen this frequently in people who have a large mesenteric hematomas. If you have a mesenteric hematoma and it goes almost adjacent to the bowel, as that mesenteric hematoma is somewhat organized, it will actually choke the blood supply going to that segment of bowel, you can have a delayed perforation. 
Patients can't present with the typical manifestations of an intradominal catastrophe, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, rectal and testicular pain, tenesmus, rarely hematemesis. Again, think about treating four or 500 patients. You may not have the ability to do CAT scans, diagnostic peritoneal lavage, uh, or ultrasound, uh, may certainly ultrasound over DPL, uh, may provide you with some assistance. Keep in mind that free air and excessive free fluid, not characteristic of blood when seen on CAT scan, are considered to be indications for laparotomy and blunt trauma patients. However, in primary blasts with pulmonary injury, free air and even tension pneumoperitoneum without intestinal injury has been reported and should be kept in mind. Looking at traumatic brain injury, still a major cause of death and bombing, accounting for 71 of early and 52% of the later deaths. The uh, thermal blast injury, they, these explosions will often produce a fireball. Uh, and as temperatures can re- exceed 3,000 degrees centigrade, there is um, typically about a third of reporters, a third of uh, survivors, uh, will have uh, burns and, and require uh, burn care for that. Keep in mind the, the different fragmentation injuries that involve. Keep in mind the idea of flying nails, wood, glass, and so forth. I found this for a talk I was giving on bomb and blast injuries, and these are some of the. This is a report. Uh, out of uh, people who were cared for at Hiroshima. This is some of the notes. It said, the external injuries, this, keep in mind, these are treating victims of the Hiroshima atomic bombing, but the external injuries caused to the human body by the blast wind were all secondary injuries due to flying debris, especially glass spinner, splinters, roughly 60% of those treated. Some people suffered hundreds of cuts from small splinters, while others lost the mobility of limbs when larger splinters, splinters, severed major nerves. In some cases, glass splinters even penetrated the skull and lodged in the brain. The next most frequent external injuries were bruises and contusions. Although fractures were rare, the 2%, some victims suffered paralysis due to spinal injuries. Again, that's looking at um, the injuries associated with uh, Hiroshima. Environmental debris, such as glass, splinters, soil, and various structural particles are propelled with similar velocities by the blast wind and may well be the major cause of fragment wounding. Uh, uh, With the advent of suicide bombers, this brings in a whole new dimension of the biological uh, weapon of the actual human body. a patient may, the suicide bomber may be infected with HIV or hepatitis or other types of serious diseases uh, that uh, they've acquired or self-inoculated themselves with, uh, and that creates, creates a rather uh, a complex dilemma uh, if that's the bomber and all of a sudden they've set themselves off and now you're treating injured patients who may be covered with uh, HIV-infected blood or something else. Uh, uh, almost all penetrating fragment wounds of the abdomen can be closed primarily, and 85% of penetrating thoracic wounds of the, uh, of the chest, obviously thoracic wounds, can be managed just by a simple chest tube. All war wounds, um, blast wounds, and so forth, are considered to be contaminated by soil, clothing, and skin. High-velocity missiles have been shown to widely contaminate a wound tract. Low-velocity uh, fragmentation wounds are minimally contaminated with debris. Bacterial contamination is ubiquitous in fragmentation wounds with soil, skin organisms such as Clostridia, Streptococcus, Staphylococcus, Proteus, E. coli, Enterococcus. Although infection is uncommon in, sm- in small, low-velocity wounds of the extremity. Although, uh, and again, we're reading right here out of Mahoney's textbook. He says, although somewhat controversial, 
some reports in the literature support early antibiotics and non-operative treatment of extremity wounds less than a centimeter in size in patients who show no evidence of neurovascular injury or compartment syndrome and also have a stable fracture pattern. Operative treatment of these numerous wounds can lead to increased morbidity and in general is unnecessary. So that is a reasonably brief introduction of some of the types of things you can see with bomb and blast injuries. I hope this was interesting for you, but I hope it was just that interesting and informative. I hope this is information that you never have to put into clinical practice, but like I said, many of the people who are in the know, uh, organizations like the Center for Disease Control in the United States, are trying to disseminate this information. You can obtain more information of this uh, from the CDC's website. I'm going to try to post links to it on my website, which is www.burndoc.com. Hopefully I'll get to that in the next uh, day or two. I hope you had a nice Independence Day. By all means, be safe. We are getting feedback from uh, you, the listener, from all over the world. I really do appreciate that and appreciate your kind comments. We've heard from people from all over the United States, Czechoslovakia, uh, Ethiopia, Italy, um, all over the world, and uh, I, I really appreciate the kind comments. My name's Jeff Guy. Have a nice day.